All right, Daniel chapter 9. Like I said, I will read the whole passage, but we're only going to be really considering verses 1 through 19 for this morning. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations that the city and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. 
Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or holy one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Thus far the reading of God's word. I mean, easy, right? That last, those last three verses, no sweat. Well, it's probably not a stretch to say that we live in an era, in a time of instant gratification, right? We want what we want, and when do we want it? We want it now, right? Whether it's fast food, whether it's high-speed internet, whether it's online shopping with next-day delivery, we want what we want and we want it now. Delayed gratification is a thing of the past. And it's no surprise that we treat prayer in this way as well. We pray for something and get frustrated when God doesn't answer right away. We pray for something and when we don't get it, we assume the answer is no and then we stop praying. Why does it continue to surprise us that God's timing regarding prayer and answering prayer is not the same as our timing? And that's what we see here, at least in the first half of Daniel 9, right, this morning. Uh, Because Daniel 9 is both one of the easiest passages to understand and one of the most difficult passages to understand. On the one hand, it's easy because in the first 19 verses... Daniel prays to God in the last seven verses. Daniel gets an answer to the prayer, right? Easy peasy. That's what the passage basically is teaching. Daniel prays. God gives Daniel an answer. The problem is, on the other hand, it's the answer to the prayer that is really difficult to understand. In fact, it's one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret properly. In fact, 
to be perfectly honest, I'm not even sure I can give you sort of the interpretation of the passage, a definitive interpretation of the passage. Now we'll look at the passage next week. We'll look at it in more detail and we'll try to muddle through it. But in the end, I'm not even sure 100% what the proper interpretation is. But here, one thing I am almost 100% certain on, in fact, I am 100% certain on, is that the future of God's people is found in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what Daniel 9 as a whole is teaching. The future of God's people is found in the coming of Jesus Christ. And like I said, we'll look at this over the next two weeks because there's a lot of material here to cover properly, particularly in that last three or four verses that we read. Now as we come to this passage this morning, we see just like in the previous, <clears throat> just like in the previous two chapters, Daniel 9 opens by giving us a little bit of the historical context that Daniel is in and also sort of the motivation for his prayer. As you look at the first two verses again, please. Where we see, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent in Mede, who was made king over the realms of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So when we say that we're in the first year of Darius, the king of, of, the, of, of Persia by descent of Mede, it puts us, context, historically context, it puts us in the year 539 B.C. If you remember when we looked at chapter 5, when, when Belshazzar was king of Babylon, that was the year that the, the Persians came, and that very night after the handwriting in the wall, Belshazzar was killed, and the kingdom was handed over to the Persians. So here we are, we're in the first year of Darius, who just conquered Babylon, that puts us in the year 539 B.C., now, if you remember at the beginning of Daniel, when Daniel was deported, or I should say exported, from Judah to Babylon, that began in the year 605 B.C. And we're told in the book of Jeremiah, which we'll look at in a second, it was foretold that the captivity of the Jewish people would be for 70 years. Now, again, you have to re realize the Jewish people were in exile because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their apostasy, because of their failure to keep the covenant, because of their failure to observe and worship God. They were exiled. God promised this way back during the Pentateuch. In, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, He pronounces, like, if you obey Me, if you follow My covenant, the land will be blessed, you will be blessed, your fields will be blessed. Your wombs will be blessed. Everything will be blessed. But if you don't follow me, if you break covenant, then you will be cursed. The land will be cursed. It will no longer produce its fruit. Your wombs will be closed. And you will be, you will be sent to a, a foreign land. And we saw now, we see this as, as the Babylonians had captured and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That judgment had been carried out. And now as we get to this year, 539, we are getting close to the end of that 70 years of captivity. And this was something that was promised 
in the book of Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, when the prophet tells the people, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So again, we see through the prophet Jeremiah that because of Israel's sin, they will be cast out of the land for 70 years. And then at the end of the 70 years, God will bring them back in and he will bring judgment upon the Babylonians for their own sin. And that's what we see here. The Babylonians have been conquered. And if you begin reckoning at 605 BC, by the time you get to 539 BC, you're getting very close to the end of the 70 years. And because the time was drawing near, Daniel prays. He prays for his people. And the reason Daniel prays for his people can be found in Jeremiah 29. You can flip there if you'd like. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. This is a very uh, popular passage. In fact, verse 11 is a very popular memory verse. Jeremiah 29. The context of this is Jeremiah the prophet writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And in verses 10 through 14, we read, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now again, verse 11, right, is a popular verse. You may have that as a memory verse, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Problem is, we often take that verse out of context and don't realize what the context is here. The plan that the Lord has is for His people, Israel, who are in exile. And when the 70 years are up, He says, if you turn to Me, If you pray to me, then I will hear you. And then I will restore you back to the land from which I sent you. And that's what Daniel does here. The promise is that if God's people seek him, they will find him. He will restore their fortunes and gather them from all the places to where they have been scattered. What a promise for God's people, right? God is their covenant God. And they are His covenant people. God can no more forget His covenant people than He could forget anything. And no matter how sinful we are, no matter how far we fall, God remembers His covenant. 
Think of the Israelites crying out in bondage in Egypt after 400 years of bondage. Again, something God had predicted when He spoke to Abraham. He said, you will have this land, but not yet. You'll have to wait 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete and your people will be in a foreign land and they will be subjugated. And we see in the opening chapters of Exodus as the people are subjugated, they cry out to the Lord and then we hear that we see that passage in which we read that the Lord heard His people and the Lord remembered the covenant that He made with their fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers His covenant. God remembers His people. And if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to restore to us the joy of our salvation. We can go back to Daniel 9. So Daniel... The time is near. The 70 years are almost up. He realizes that if his people pray, if God's people pray, he will restore their fortunes. So Daniel takes it upon himself now to pray on behalf of his people. And we see the prayer start in verse 3 where Daniel says, Then, because I saw that the 70 years were almost up, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So just like Daniel would do, just like Daniel's done his whole entire life, right? We saw this in Daniel 6 in the lion's den, right? What was Daniel's big crime? Well, Daniel's big crime was that he prayed to God instead of going to Darius the king. But we see in that chapter that Daniel prayed to God three times a day as was his custom. And here, Daniel prays, he turns his face to God and he begins to seek the Lord in prayer. And not just in prayer, but notice, pleas for mercy. Very visceral language here. He, he is pleading on behalf of his people to God to be merciful to them. And not only that, he adds this idea of fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In other words, he is devoting himself 100% to this intercessory prayer as he prays for his people. He foregoes uh, worldly pleasures. He foregoes food. And he foregoes the comfort of comfortable clothing, puts on sackcloth and ashes. Daniel adopts an attitude of mourning, an attitude of grief, an attitude of repentance for his people. And the reason he prays is because he knows the Jewish people have sinned. They have broken covenant with their God. And Daniel intercedes for them with God. And the fact that they have sinned and the fact that they have broken covenant is evident in the fact that he is praying in Babylon where his people had been exiled to. Now notice as he begins his prayer in verse four, verses 4 and 5. I pray to the Lord my God and made confession saying... O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and Your rules. And note other passages here. We're not going to go 
through everything in exquisite detail, but notice where he says um, in verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Verse 9, to our Lord God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Verse 10, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. Again, there, noting, he's, he he notes how Israel has broken covenant. But notice how when he begins this prayer, he begins by praising God, right? He doesn't start by saying, Oh Lord, the 70 years are up. Please restore the fortunes of every people. Make your face shine upon us and give us back the land. Thank you, amen. And then he gets up off and goes back to his day. No, he begins by praising God, who he is. And what he's done. In fact, if you notice in verse 4 where he says, I prayed to the Lord. Do you have the word Lord there, all capitals? If you do, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's, in English translations, it's typically rendered capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to designate God's covenant name. In Daniel 9 is the only place where you see God's covenant name mentioned. Everywhere else, it's the Most High God or the Lord God Almighty. So here God, Daniel's praying to his covenant God. And after he's done praising God for who he is and what he has done, he then moves on to corporate confession of sin. Israel did not listen to the prophets. The prophets were sent to sort of bring Israel back into obedience to the law, right? Moses gives the law. The prophets are then later sent to sort of bring Israel back. They're the, what are often referred to, they are the sort of the covenant prosecutors. They work on behalf of the Lord to call the people back to obedience. So Israel did not listen to the prophets. All Israel had sinned, from the kings down to the princes, down to the fathers. And how Israel transgressed the law of Moses, the covenant. And all of these are the covenant uh, promises of punishment for disobedience. He makes his plea to the Lord's mercy. He makes his plea to the Lord's steadfast covenant love to turn his anger away from his people and to make his face shine upon them again. And again, look at verse 18, I believe. Oh my God, incline your ear to hear Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. In other words, look, Lord, we are not righteous. And I don't ask you to answer this prayer because we are somehow better than everyone else. No, I ask you to answer this prayer because of your great mercy. And he makes that prayer to make, please, Turn your face to us again. Let your face shine upon us again. That should sound familiar because each week I typically close with the benediction that is given in Numbers chapter 6 as Aaron is to bless the people. And one of the blessings he says is to may the Lord make His face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. The shining of the Lord's face 
is the Lord giving his blessing to his people. All in all, this is a great prayer. It is a great prayer. Note how Daniel does not immediately go into asking God to restore them. He first begins with words of praise. He then moves on to confession of sin. And then, and only then, does he move on to petition. Now maybe you've heard this acronym used before as a model for prayer, but have you heard of the ACTS method of prayer, A-C-T-S, right? Where in which we, when we pray, we offer adoration to God, right? We praise God for who He is. Then the C is we confess our sins before Him. The T then is we show thanksgiving for everything that He has given us. And then at the end is supplication. The S is supplication. In other words, you praise God. You confess your sins. You thank Him for everything He's given you. Then you make your petitions. Then you supplicate Him for your needs. Or notice how when Jesus' disciples asked Him, teach us to pray, O Lord. And He gives Him the Lord's Prayer, which we said just a little while ago this morning. And how does that prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Then He goes on, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. First you praise God. First you acknowledge who God is. First you you thank Him for what He has done for you. Then you move on to your needs and your, your requests. This is a model for intercessory prayer as as one who prays on behalf of God's people to God. And Daniel here, he's not a king. He's not a priest. A priest is one who stands between God and the people, right? He is the, the mediator in a sense, right? The priest speaks to the people on behalf of God. And then the priest then also speaks to God on behalf of the people. And Daniel is taking it upon himself to pray for his people and to intercede on their behalf. And in this way, Daniel foreshadows what Christ has done for us. Christ who prays for His people. Christ who prays for the sheep that God has given to Him. In John chapter 17, we see what many call the high priestly prayer of Jesus in which Jesus was a better high priest than the priests of the Levitical priesthood. He prays to the Father on behalf of His people in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 17 in particular, where we see Jesus praying to the Father, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. So Jesus here says, I am interceding, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me out of the world, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Just as Daniel prayed for his people, just as Daniel prayed for God to restore the fortunes of the people of Israel, Jesus also prays for his people. And it doesn't end there, right? Because if the ministry of Jesus was just confined to his earthly ministry, now then he's no longer praying for us. But we know from the writer of Hebrews that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever wondered why the ascension of Jesus is so important? The ascension of Jesus is so important because as Jesus ascends to heaven, He is where? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. And what does Jesus do while He's there? He intercedes for us on our behalf because He ever lives to make intercession. I don't know if that excites you. It excites me, right? How awesome is it to know that Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, interceding for me, interceding for His people all throughout the world. The only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, prays for us. That's awesome in the truest sense of the Word. Well, because this is a two-part sermon, a one-part sermon that's being turned into a two-part sermon, I have to try to close this now as we come to close. I don't have a conclusion for this part, so I'm going to wing this here. But as we conclude, the idea here is Daniel prays. And he doesn't just pray some rote prayer, right? Again, think about those, that, those words, pleas of mercy. Pleas of mercy. And if you think about how prayer is presented throughout Scripture, we see that prayer is more, it's more than just talking to God. I mean, it is talking to God. right? God speaks to us through His Word, and we speak back to God in prayer. But it is more than that. right? It is so much more than that. A sermon I preached uh, some weeks ago, Psalm 62, and in the middle verse of that psalm, in verse 8, we see the psalmist say, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So the psalmist says, don't just pray to God. Don't just say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. No. Pour out your heart before the Lord. Cry out to Him. Right? I mean, that, that word pour out your heart speaks of emotion. It speaks of all kinds of 
things that we normally don't want to say, well, that should be in prayer to God, right? No, pour out your heart. Tell them what's on your heart, right? We see in the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah, who is uh, Elkanah's wife, Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, she was barren. She had no children. And Elkanah had two wives, and the other wife had a whole bunch of children. Hannah had no children. And as they're going to the, to the annual feast each year, um, Elkanah goes and he makes his offerings, and, and Hannah goes, and she goes before the Lord. And we see in 1 Samuel 15, Anna, Hannah said, uh, because uh, the priest Eli thought she was drunk, because she was, she was pouring out her heart before God so much that the priest thought that she was drunk. And she says, no, Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. In other words, she was praying earnestly before the Lord to, to give her, to, to, to entreat the Lord for children. And again, here Daniel is pouring out his heart before the Lord in prayer. And we should think of prayer that way as well. Prayer is not something that is a last resort. That should be our first response in everything we do. Prayer should be our first response. And, and again, I say that to my own shame as well because it's easy to forego prayer when things are going well, right? You got a lot of money in the bank account. You got a lot of, you know, crop in the silos and everything's going well and, you know, your children are healthy and wealthy, you know, and everything is going well, and we can sort of forget to pray, right? We all often treat prayer as that something that's like, in case of emergency, break glass. But prayer should be our lifeline to God. We should pray always. One last verse that was on my mind as we close this. We often hear this verse used in a national day of prayer, right? We have the annual national day of prayer and we often hear this verse, Second Chronicles 7.14, used in that context where we see this is uh, Solomon dedicating the temple. And after Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, uh, all that Solomon planned to do in the house of the Lord, then the Lord appears to Solomon at night and the Lord is speaking to Solomon. And that's what we see in verse 14. So the Lord is telling Solomon, look, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now we often, like I said, we use this in the National Day of Prayer and kind of apply it to an American context. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Here, the Lord is telling Simon, look, if my people humble themselves, if they pray, I will hear them. And that's what we see here in this passage because Daniel humbles himself. Daniel prays to the Lord. And next week, we're going to see the Lord answer Daniel's prayer in a way that goes far beyond anything that Daniel himself could have ever asked for or hoped. And we need to understand that too. When we pray to the Lord earnestly, humbling ourselves, the Lord will answer our prayers. Maybe not in the way we want Him to answer, but the Lord will answer in a way that glorifies His name and is good for us ultimately. So I've left you here now with the cliffhanger. If you want to hear the answer to Daniel's prayer, you have to come back next week. 
So that is your invitation to come back to church next week. But right now, let us ourselves close in a word of prayer.